Locked away in attics, basements, and dark corners across the world are stories of beings and beasts that hide in the night. These are those stories. This is the Sleepless in Suburbia podcast. I'm Brooke, case manager for our team, and this is the audio update for Case 115, Wyndham's West Bank Hideaway. This week is going to be different from the rest. Instead of a new case from a recent investigation, we are revisiting a case that is still lingering around us all these weeks later. If you haven't listened to Case 115, Wyndham's West Bank Hideaway, you'll want to go back and listen to that episode first. It will be here when you get back. Lowe and Claire compiled so much research and hours of interviews. I'm going to try my best to piece it all together in a way that does it justice and brings you up to speed on what they found. Let's start with some evidence. While Lowe and Claire went through handwritten text page by page, Lark and I went back to the evidence collected that night. You may remember that Case 115's recap didn't have much in the way of audible evidence, but that's not because there wasn't any to share. After returning home from that investigation, we were too rattled to sit down and relive the entire night through digital recording. The nightmares, feelings of being watched, anxiety with paranoia sprinkled in for good measure, and insomnia was enough of a reminder for a while. So the hours of digital footage from that terrifying night got dumped on the Sleepless in Suburbia Society Evidence for Terra whatever external hard drive in a file titled Nope. I know. Not incredibly creative or professional, but it's how I felt at the time. Lark was still crashing in James's room when she approached me about reviewing the evidence. It honestly felt too soon. None of the other ladies had even mentioned the case, though I knew Lowe was down the rabbit hole of her own investigation, but she was pretty mum about it at that point. So that night, after a takeout Mexican food feast, pineapple jalapeno margarita in hand, for me, Coke Zero for Lark, Lark and I opened the Nope file, agreeing to each listen to an hour of our own audio. One hour turned into two, Then we'd both moved on to another member's audio. Once it started, we just wanted it finished. Having to make the choice to sit and listen to the audio on another occasion wasn't an option. We both knew if we stopped, we'd never open the nope file again. As the sun came up, Asher, he's the guy crazy enough to want to marry me, sent Michael down to my office with breakfast pizza. At the end of our 16-hour evidence-reviewing bender, we'd found three pieces of evidence we couldn't debunk. There was an interesting equipment issue. All, and I mean every second, of our video recordings are gone. In the folder, you can see the file name, date modified, size, and even the kind of file. There's information there, but when you click, nothing loads. It's hard to believe that six different video files all hiccuped and stopped working. We don't have an explanation, but we think it might have something to do with the infestation. Without video to review, all of our evidence came from digital recorders. Here's what we found. Lark caught this voice on her recorder as she rushed back into the cabin from the backyard. Let's listen. 
Excuse me, miss. That's exactly what Lark said she heard that night. And this next bit of audio evidence was pulled from Claire's digital recorder. We thought it was really strange they were asking to use an old-time music player. It's not a word that's used anymore. So Lark was pretty shocked when she heard it in the background of Claire's audio. This last audio clip comes from Lowe's digital recorder. If you remember from the Case 115 recap episode, Lowe's time at the lodge was pretty uneventful. She didn't hear voices or get chased from the backyard by supernatural beings. Other than a blackout at the lodge and off-roading to pick us up, she felt rather unscathed by the night. That changed when we played her this clip from her digital recorder's audio. Lowe hadn't seen or heard them, but they'd seen her. I actually thought the audio would scare Lowe off from digging deeper into the things, but I should have known better. Her efforts only intensified after we played her that clip. It's been weeks since I've been at the hideaway, and hearing their voices makes my stomach queasy. Do they know we captured evidence of them? And if they do, does that mean we are more at risk than we originally thought? And an even bigger question, are we putting you at risk playing these for you to hear? If we are, I'm sorry. The likely cause and effect. Here's where Claire and Lowe's hours of research come together, and it begins as the United States worked to move past the Civil War. Many found themselves feeling betrayed or disheartened by their government and their religions. Many had lost loved ones, homes, and livelihoods during the war. People were desperate. They felt lost, longing for something to believe in and guidance on what path to take now. When their world looked different, they sought anything to help them make sense of the loss. Enter George Sherman, born 1839. George's life had been a quiet one. His years spent learning from his mother, who was a teacher, and helping his father in the family blacksmith business. When the war came, George was called to serve, and that call would cost him nearly everything. Two months before the war ended, George's regiment got hit by a surprise attack. He was hit at least twice by musket fire. As he lay dying for a violent war he didn't believe in, a glowing green orb appeared in the sky. The small orb grew in size, changing shape into a beam of light hitting George on his bloodied chest. From the beam of light, two humanoid figures emerged. They stood between four and five feet tall, had shoulder-length red hair, and dark eyes. He detailed this experience in his journal. The beings told him that it wasn't his time to die because he had important work to do. Both of the child-sized beings laid their hands upon his chest, causing all the pain within George's body to dissipate. He awoke two days later in a hospital. He shared his experiences with anyone he came in contact with, but no one believed the encounter, instead chalking it up to hallucinations caused by his severe injuries. George grew increasingly frustrated. In his mind, he knew the truth. He believed his life was saved by humans from the sky. If no one believed him, 
He'd set up camp in a wooded area away from town and away from the non-believers. Sleeping during the day and spending his nights gazing at the sky looking for answers. When at first the creatures didn't appear to him, he tried different ways of contacting them. His journal details his attempts to get the sky being's attention, which included prayer both in his mind and out loud, building a table and placing gifts on the table each day. These gifts included pieces of silver, berries, nuts, knives, fish, candles, coffee beans, and even a harmonica. He'd leave letters in various open spaces around the campsite, including on top of large rocks, tacked to tree bark, and held down with stones on the lake's beaches. And he even tried morphine to help his mind reach the beings more freely. His attempts at communication appeared to have worked, as he details several separate occasions when the illuminated ones came to him with, quote, knowledge not of this plane. The illuminated ones arrived from what began as a pulsing orb in the sky. The beings never came alone. They varied in height, all being between four and five and a half feet tall, with red hair never longer than their shoulders, skin so pale it glowed in the moonlight, and eyes as dark as ebony. The two leaders of the illuminated ones looked the same as the others, except for patches worn on their sleeves. Their names were Helmer and Duncan. At least one of the leaders came on every visit. They were the only ones that communicated with George. Communication was done telepathically. They promised George and anyone he brought into the fold unimaginable riches, success, and power if they tithe to the beings each month. The monthly cost of his tithe a sacrifice. They instructed George to build an altar out of stone, pulled from around what is now Canary Lake, placing it exactly 227 paces south of the lake. When the altar was complete, the Illuminated Ones awarded George with charisma. The next time George went into town, standing in the square preaching on living an illuminated life, inviting people to join him in practice and celebration every Wednesday evening. People actually stopped and listened. The next Wednesday, 17 people showed up to listen to George speak. After the attendees went home, George took a sheep to the altar, slitting its throat. The first tithe was complete. Week after week, the number of Illuminites increased. Some deciding to move to the land, building small log cabins, fully dedicating their lives to the Illuminated Ones. Eventually, the animal sacrifices weren't enough for the leaders. They wanted more, quote, intelligent life's blood. That's when human sacrifices began in the cover of darkness. George believed it was his sacred duty to set human souls free by sacrificing them. At first, his victims were the elderly or sick. The Illuminated Ones were visiting more frequently now, bringing more of them each visit. The Illuminites thought that gods were walking among them. Those living on the land spent their days praying, farming, and gathering together for meals and ceremonies to honor the Illuminated Ones. The commune was thriving. 
Each person believed they were serving their way to the highest illuminated state. The week leading up to the sixth human sacrifice, Duncan asked George for a tithe of the youth. Apparently, young blood held the most powerful force. When George resisted, Duncan motioned to the cabins and the people milling about. He could take all of that away from George if he made them angry. On the night of the full moon, one of the Illuminites awoke, restless. She decided to walk through the woods to calm her nerves, ending up in a portion of the woods no one ever ventured to. It was there she heard a baby crying. From the trees, she watched in horror as George raised a blade, striking the infant. She turned and ran, running until she made it into town, telling the first person she came across what she'd seen. The illuminated ones warned George that the town was coming for him. He knew the town would hang him for his crimes. Death was imminent, but not eternal. Hand in hand at the altar, Duncan and Helmer walked George through one final ceremony. This portion of George's journal is rushed, presumably written in the hours or even minutes leading up to his death. He detailed that the ceremony involved a stone from the illuminated one's world, a piece of altar stone, and the hair of both Duncan and Helmer. Those pieces were wrapped in silk and buried 227 paces northeast of the altar. The townspeople did come for George, but he wasn't hanged. He was executed on the property by musket near the western bank of Canary Lake. Why was this information so hard to find? It's a part of this region's past that they'd much rather forget. To find out anything about the Illuminites or George Sherman, you have to sift through boxes of journals and old texts tucked away in storage rooms of the Historical Society, which was closed the day we visited. In fact, it's still closed. But Lowe can be pretty persuasive. She basically had to promise them her second, third, and fourth born and a kidney to be able to borrow a few of the old written journals, ledgers, and historical accounts. Let's put these pieces together. Why this space? We really weren't sure about that, because until Lowe really dug, we didn't find anything that would indicate this property was a hotbed. Were the Wyndhams causing it on purpose or by accident? We can say very confidently that the answer to this is no, and believe me, we tried to dig up some dirt on Walt and Sarah. Claire reached out to as many people as she could that know the Wyndhams. Everyone from past renters and business associates to servers at Mud Pies and their daughter's 11th grade chemistry teacher. We figured if they dabbled in anything on the dark side, someone would know something. And as we suspected, they weren't the cause of the infestation, just a couple of well-liked, well-respected community members. Through all this research, something was pinging low. The lake, the altar, the buried ritual ceremony offering. Each a paranormal trigger point. The lake water was a conduit for paranormal energy. Spirits and energy seeped into the earth from the altar, creating a hot spot. The final ceremony offering was the last piece of a powerful supernatural triad. 
They form a triangle around a good portion of Wyndham's West Bank hideaway. Triangles aren't good. Think Bridgewater or Bermuda. And now I guess we can add the illuminated triangle to that list. We don't know what words were spoken during that final ceremony. But if it took place like George's journal says, that closed corner of the triangle may have been the key needed for the black-eyed things to move freely back and forth. Here are our theories and wrap up. There's still a lot of solid facts we don't know, which is on par with our line of work. We do, however, have a lot more information now to help form and create our theories. What are the black-eyed kids? We believe that in this case, the illuminated ones and the black-eyed kids are likely similar or the same beings. It's possible that they are from another planet or another dimension but are definitely, in our opinion, things to avoid. This area around Canary Lake appears to be an entry point for these beings. It seems that the sacrifices and rituals performed on the property prop the door open for these beings to pass through freely. That might have been the leader's intentions all along, create a space for easy travel between their world and ours. So if this door is there, Why was it quiet on the property for so long? And then poof, infestation. Yeah, we don't have an answer to that. Maybe the black-eyed kids have been passing through unnoticed for some time. It's also possible that something had blocked or slowed their entrance, but that block has since been removed. Most concerning to us, what if they are planning something? And that's why they are sending so many beings through in such a short amount of time. What we hope is that if the door is opened, it can be closed. Are we totally screwed? I mean, we hope not. Though we have more information, we can't say that we have a lot of the questions answered. But now that we have a better idea of what we're dealing with, we can create a plan. Are we, the Sleepless and Suburbia Society, heading back to the hideaway? Um... No. This is way outside of our realm of expertise. When in doubt, sage it out and ask for some freaking help. When you monkey around with things you don't understand, it's possible you'll end up doing more harm than good. The last thing we need to do is blast that door open even wider or bring that space home with us more than we already have. How are the Wyndhams? We've received a few DMs from the Wyndhams, and we are happy to tell you they're doing fine. The hideaway is closed until further notice, and the couple has decided to stay with their daughter until things are cleared up on the property. Sarah has seen the dark-eyed creatures on more than one occasion in her daughter's backyard, but they haven't knocked on the door. We've recommended that she reach out to her church's reverend to have a blessing performed on the family and the house. So what's the solution? There's no concrete answer. But that's not stopping us from trying everything we have in our supernatural toolkit. We're bringing out the big guns here. After a lot of phone calls and emails, we've gathered together a group of professionals to try and shut down whatever is flaring up in Madison. We have a faith healer, Reiki master, demonologist, priest, energetic healer, 
shaman, healer of the indigenous people community, and medium. If there's a chance of shutting this infestation down, these eight are the ones to make it happen. Instead of going at the problem one at a time, they're rolling in as a united front covering a wide spectrum of methodologies, beliefs, and abilities. We still aren't able to close Case 115, Wyndham's West Bank Hideaway, but we're closer than we've ever been. This is an encouraging step in the right direction. We'll keep you updated. If you want to stay up to date with everything happening behind the scenes, you can stay connected with us on Facebook and Instagram. We're at Sleepless Suburbia Pod. We'll be back next week with another case. Until then, thanks again for listening to Sleepless in Suburbia. If you enjoy our cases, one of the biggest compliments that you can give us is to share us with some of your friends who like spooky things. Or if you're up for it, leave us a rating and a review on your podcast listening app. Before we wrap things up, if you happen to be looking for a true crime way to pass some time in the podcast world, we have a great recommendation for you. If you're looking for a new true crime podcast, head on over and check out If I Go Missing. They cover some really great cases and go pretty in-depth. And if you give them a listen, tell them that the Sleepless in Suburbia podcast say hey. Bye, guys.